Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Kay, and I use pronouns like she and her. And I'm Pastor Emily, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. In this episode, we'll discuss the 16th Sunday after Pentecost, also known as Proper 21 or Lectionary 26, which this year falls on September 25th. One content notification for this episode is that we talk about economic injustice, colonization, racism, and slavery when discussing the deep dive. We also have some exciting announcements for you. So if you are listening to this before 6 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday, the day after it came out, then make sure if you are a Patreon supporter at the Who, Which, and What's It or higher levels, that's $10 a month or more, that you join us for our live Q&A. You can find the link on patreon.com. And if you sign up today to be a Patreon subscriber at the $10 or more level, you will have access. So go sign up, be a Patreon subscriber at $10 or more a month, and we will see you tonight. Also, for anyone and everyone, We have a new merch up at our merch store for those of you who have been longing to see expressed the constant refrain, murder, bad. We've got (laughs) merch for you. Check out our new logo. You can check out our merch store at bit.ly, bit.ly, slash nerds at church merch. And we'll include a link in our episode description. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. For our deep dive for today, we are diving into the concepts of economic justice and toxic charity. We hear a lot about charity and only a little about toxic charity. So toxic charity can be a lot of things. People occasionally talk about it as inspiration porn, inspo Mm, porn. Inspiration porn, when you're taking pictures or examples of people and basically turning them into examples of their marginalization. For example, disabled people don't necessarily want their life story to be public in order to inspire other people because they're allowed to be private citizens like anybody else and Mm -hmm. also 99 times out of 100 a person's life is not actually a simple parable with a happy ending and trying to turn someone into an inspirational story when in fact their life is probably more complicated than that can go some very weird places yeah it's also like this goes around every once in a while If a deaf child gets cochlear implants and hears for the first time, that is also inspo porn, inspiration porn. Most people in the deaf community would argue what is more beautiful is when a deaf child or a child of deaf parents first sees their parent talking to them in sign or when they first experience sign language and communication that way. And that's this beautiful thing that is part of their culture. Or for that matter, the hearing parents of a deaf child who actually bother to learn sign in the first place, which unfortunately is not nearly as common as one would hope. Yeah, definitely. If you have deaf children, you should be learning sign language. You should probably try and learn at least some anyway, especially like one of the cool things about ASL is For folks who are not language people, 
ASL, because it is so very different from spoken language, is a language that a lot of times people can get because it's very kinetic. It's literally hands-on. Muscle memory. Yep. There's a lot of places that teach beginner stuff. There's community colleges that'll do associate's degrees. It's worth it to learn it. Yeah. I've been slowly learning, but not, not quite as fast as I would like to. Something else that's closely related to inspiration porn is missionary work. <laughs> Particularly, and I have been guilty of this myself when I did not know better, taking pictures when you're on a mission trip with the kids, right? So the number of white people who take pictures with black and brown kids on a mission yeah. trip. I have done it. Sure. Like full confessions. And that's part of the like going for the wrong reasons, right? If you are going on a mission trip, A, highly suspicious if it is legit and not just toxic charity. Like I benefited a ton from the mission trips that I went on. And hopefully we helped people and the houses we built weren't terrible. Sure. But that's frequently not the case. And and it's complicated, right? We want people to go to new places and learn new things. But you can't just be like, oh, I'm going to go do this good thing for them. And then I feel good about it. Like, yeah. are you actually benefiting the community? Are you actually benefiting that person or that family? Do they need that better house? How does that impact their relationship with their neighbors if they have a fancy house and other people don't? Are you actually qualified to build a house yeah there's right? a like lot of that, stuff that goes that's into a that. thing that like so much goes into like are you actually qualified to build a house and if not why are you going and are there people there already who live there who are qualified to build that house and could use the employment mm -hmm. yeah um a lot of the times toxic charity will make the person doing the charity feel good about themselves right it makes right. us feel good to go build a house to help people one of the classic examples I've heard several times is imagine being a orphan in a country that's going through a difficult time and you live in an orphanage and every month there's a new white person who shows up for two weeks and has this extraordinary life experience for them. But for you, it's your life and you have to keep watching these people go through this weird emotional roller coaster basically at your expense over and over and over again. And supposedly mm -hmm. they're helping you, but actually they're doing some very strange long-term emotional damage that's hard to describe if you haven't lived it. Yeah. Yeah. Attachment disorders are real. And yeah. having people constantly going in and out of someone's life without any permanence yeah. is part of what leads Devastating. to Devastating. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of the, like, it doesn't necessarily last, right? Like, I have done stuff and... I'm fairly confident that I was forgotten about within a week, right? Sure. Or a month or whatever. And there are some things that like I wasn't and I was able to integrate into the community. And I don't know, like there are some things that are unclear, but it does raise the question from friends, which as a show did not age well. But there's this one episode that's really good where Phoebe and Joey are having this conversation and Joey's like, well, you can't do a selfless act. There's no such thing as a selfless act. If you do good for someone else, it makes you feel good. So sure. it's not selfless. And Phoebe is like determined to find something <laughs> to the extent that she like gives money to PBS, even though she doesn't like PBS because of like a bad experience as a child. And so she gives all this money that she won because of this like finger that was in a 
soda can or something. And she's like, see, I found a thing. And it just happens to be that Joey is helping with the phonathon that they're doing. And so she <laughs> donates and Joey gets on TV because of it. She didn't intend this, but Joey gets on TV because of it. And then she's like, oh, that's great. I feel so, oh, damn it. Because <laughs> <laughs> she gets really happy. And then she's like, oh, no. So. Yeah. It is not that you have to feel bad about doing good for others, but it is important who is centered. And we'll get into this more as we like dive into economic justice. But we have some great examples for you of toxic charity. Sure. Why not? And like for the record, we are not trying to discourage you from helping people. That is not our goal yeah. here. Our goal is to encourage you to ask good questions about how you're helping people, how that help will last, and what the both short and long-term effects are of what you're doing. For mm -hmm. example, yeah. after Hurricane Katrina, Brad Pitt and several other major stars got together to put together a housing project in the New Orleans area. And... It was a very exciting project for a while there. Ellen DeGeneres did a big party as an unveiling of the thing. They made the houses very affordable for people to buy. They were not given away. And there were a lot of good environmentally friendly ways that the houses were adapted to make like the utility bills lower, that kind of thing. They had solar panels uh, and so on. As it turns out, the houses were built by architects from various other parts of the world, not New Orleans, not familiar with New Orleans climate or weather. And, you know, if you're living in New Orleans, which gets a lot of rain constantly, especially in the rainy season, you really want to have it you was know, that, gutters. Like the disaster was, after all, about rain. Yes. <laughs> And these houses did not have gutters. They had flat roofs that couldn't handle the rain. They were not built with mold-resistant materials. They, like, there were several good things about these houses, but there were also several things that meant that they almost immediately started falling apart. Several of the houses were, have been torn down uh, in the years since. The charity that built the houses originally, which was called Make It Right, has disbanded entirely and like stopped answering phone calls. And those people can't get any help on their houses. A lot of the houses were abandoned uh, because people just couldn't live there anymore. Uh, we have an article from the Guardian newspaper uh, from the UK, which I hope means that the article is a little less biased towards the celebrities that American newspapers would tend to be. And it, according to that article, uh, in 2018, only six of the houses were still in regular use of the 109 that were originally built because they had fallen apart that fast wow. uh, if i read that right yeah it's it's a real mess and and those people don't have anyone that they can go to because the make it right organization doesn't exist anymore and i would not suggest trying to sue brad pitt because guess who has lots of money for <laughs> lawyers <laughs> so yeah it, yeah it's it's quite the the example of toxic charity and it probably ruined the lives of a lot of families who had one shot at owning a home and had that ruined for them. Yeah. If, however, you want to do a publicity campaign against Brad Pitt, that is significantly more likely to have an impact if it gets enough traction. I mean, sure, but also but that, that seems like it's also likely to involve lawyers and they will not be working for you. <laughs> 
but yes. Yeah, there's just there's more space for publicity for like publicity campaigns. You're more likely to win a publicity campaign than a lawsuit because of yeah, like you said, Brad Pitt, lots of money. Yeah, but public pressure still has absolutely yeah that that does work. Currency. And on the other hand, a slightly more hopeful example is that for several decades, organizations that were trying to help uh, farmers and ranchers with their various struggles uh, in many developing countries did not always, uh, especially in like the 1970s, 1980s era, did not always pay attention to the local climate and habitat and take that into account when they sent various types of seeds or various types of feed for the animals. And that had some long ranging impacts on the environments uh, in many different countries, especially Mm -hmm. in Africa. And the good news is that a lot of those organizations have learned from their mistakes and are starting to improve noticeably on that front. Uh, and so we're, we're grateful for that. But it's another example of having to think long term, not just short term. Yeah. Also, there's like tied into that. This was not really intended to be charity at all. But in the space of agriculture and global agriculture, Frequently, countries are turned into monocultures to serve multinational corporations. And there's a lot that has happened, like for local crops, where a big ag company like Monsanto will go in and find seeds from local farmers and get some of those seeds and then sequence them, do like genome sequencing for them, patent the genome and then sue those farmers in international court for using patented seeds, even though those seeds are the ones that they've been using forever. So copyright patents, problematic. Yeah. Also, Operation Christmas Child. It is very nearly a golden calf for some congregations. It is horrible. So part of the way that it is toxic is, A, you fill a shoebox with wrap you fill a shoe box with junk from the dollar store almost every time so you're contributing to waste because the stuff is not great and it's usually plastic and made terribly and cheap so you're doing the wasteful stuff in buying it you're doing the wasteful stuff in sending it there and the kids usually have to like sit through a whole bible study or have to like profess a certain type of faith, all sorts of really terrible things. If you are doing something and you are requiring people to listen to you talk about God or faith, that is toxic charity. Particularly because a lot of these boxes are sent to areas that are not majority Christian. Mm -hmm. They are intentionally encouraging children to renounce their own faith in favor of some version, some usually very specific version of Christianity Mm -hmm. uh, in order to receive these boxes of toys. And then, of course, the toys are also terrible quality, but the kids want them anyway because they're kids. And it creates a really toxic environment. Yeah. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Yeah. And then again, also in terms of long-term thinking, one of the more famous charities in the world is the Gates Foundation, founded by Bill and Melinda Gates and also uh, helped run by uh, Warren Buffett. And 
they do a lot of work in public health and a lot of their work is actually very good. Like I've got no problem with them encouraging children to get their vaccinations. That's, that's mm -hmm. fabulous. I, or that's like fabulous. there's a thing that they did with yogurt that was like help the nutrition in a particular area that was malnourished. It was great. Yeah. They have contributed to funding uh, medical research for a lot of different diseases and conditions that don't get as much funding as other diseases and conditions. Mm -hmm. They do a lot of good work. That part I have no problem with. However, there has been a growing amount of concern in the public arena about the Gates Foundation, particularly because they have an enormous amount of money and influence and no transparency or accountability whatsoever. <laughs> They they do what they want when they want because they want to and that's it. And uh, as I found uh, quoted in one article uh, from Vox.com, having a foundation with quote assets larger than almost seventy percent of the world's nations making decisions about public policy and public priorities without any public discussion or a political process end quote is definitely going to be a problem mm -hmm. <laughs> like that. That is not how these decisions should be made. The work they're doing is good, but are they doing the work that's most necessary? We don't know because they're not telling anyone or they're not bothering. If they're doing that research, they're not bothering to tell anyone about it. Mm -hmm. yeah. so. And part of that, too, is the contrast between Microsoft as a company founded by Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation as a charitable workforce. Microsoft exploits people and labor like every big company does and then the gates which is how you get billionaires in the first place how you get billionaires in the first place and then the gates foundation comes in and does good in such a way that like they are both part of the problem and part of the solution but they get credit for being part of the solution right. and they don't get the accountability of having been part of the problem right which is problematic yeah, forming a charity to solve the problems that you created in the first place is maybe not as altruistic as one yeah. would hope. And most billionaires and millionaires have foundations where they funnel their charitable giving and then that goes to certain places and, and they all do it and it's a tax thing. It's a tax write-off. It's so that they don't have to pay taxes. Yeah, I'll get to an example of that. The governments that are trying to do the good work. Yeah. yeah. Or uh, another example uh, that some of us who are old enough to remember uh, may know. Ty Pennington, the breakout star of uh, Trading Places, the show on TLC uh, many years ago, uh, eventually formed a TV show called Extreme Makeover Home Edition, where he went to the homes of people who were going through some kind of uh, struggle or ongoing problem. And he and a team of people would make over the home in order to make it both more personalized to whatever they were struggling with, but also a pretty awesome house in general. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it looked. Yeah. So very quickly, however, uh, within like the first season of episodes, they realized that they had to make some major adaptations to how they were doing these renovations because a couple of different things would happen. One, the renovations needed to last long term. The, the show Trading Places, where they had just made over people's houses, if there was one or two things of those renovated rooms that somebody didn't like, they could replace that for a fairly reasonable amount of money usually, mm -hmm. and uh, they could fix problems. And they never went back to check in on those people anyway. So mm -hmm. it, it wasn't really a long-term thing. But if you're renovating that home of somebody who's, you know, 
dealing with like a family who has a child who's fighting cancer. I remember one, there was a kid who was allergic to the sun. Yes, I, re- I remember that episode too. And so, you know, a family that's going through a unique struggle, people want to know how that family is doing later. They want to check in on them. And if you built the house and it turns out that, you know, some aspects of the renovations you did were not made to last and started breaking down within a few months of you leaving, that's not going to be great publicity for your show. And for that matter, it's going to be even worse publicity if it turns out that the renovations you made made all of the utility costs of the house skyrocket and the family had to actually sell the house and move out because they couldn't afford the utility bills, which is the most famous example, mm-hmm. uh, most well-known example from that show, I think, of uh, what they had to learn pretty quickly. And so that show actually had to do a lot of work in terms of thinking through the long-term impact of their work. Uh, and it's a fairly decent example of how you can take something that starts out toxic because you weren't thinking about it and turn it into something that does better work. Yeah. Because in their later seasons, they did manage to address lots of those problems. My dad used to rant all the time whenever those were on TV because he's an engineer a civil engineer and so he knows how to build things sure. so he would look at them and like you mentioned at the beginning right they are a lot of the changes are very a lot of the changes are very superficial right they cover things up they make yes. things look good but it's almost never made like quality work quality craftsmanship Right. Um, it's quick stuff because they have a time limit of like a week or whatever that they're supposed to do this whole thing. And so my dad would just be like, yeah, none of that's going to last. That's not helpful. Like, and would just like yeah. not be happy about it. Yeah. Like when you start thinking about it, almost all of those homes involved families with small children. And so as part of that, almost all of those homes, when they did the renovations, they added on a children's jungle gym or a playhouse or something. Now, if you buy a jungle gym or a playhouse from a large corporation, there are laws about the safety features that those things have to have. Mm -hmm. None of those laws apply if you're renovating a house and building a jungle gym as a part of it. And so how many of those jungle gyms or those playhouses had parts break while a child was hanging from a high place mm-hmm. or you know set itself on fire due to a electrical outage or something like that we don't know but that's one of the things that that show didn't really address yeah, yeah. and that raises right the question of queer eye which a lot of us myself included have really appreciated and they've done some bad stuff right sure. they've well can we address first which generation oh, of Queer Eye yeah. are we talking about? I'm talking about? about the current generation of Queer Eye. I am not talking about the older generation. I never watched that. I don't know it. Sure. But as a show that is majority white people, at least in the cast, it's very light-skinned cast for the most part, but also I'm pretty sure the like crew and producers and all of them are majority white people, right? Like There's some racism that happened, some anti-Indigenous comments that were made. But also there's this question of what are they actually doing? Like most of the people that they go to are basically dealing with capitalism. Like their problem is capitalism itself. And you can definitely check out and we will link to our episode last week about capitalism with Dr. Felipe Maya from a theological perspective in particular. So there's, there's like memes and stuff of like Bobby, who's like 
hugs the people after remodeling stuff and is like, I sh- I saved as much as I could. And so there's like, I put cash in these places. I, I like hid cash in these places and to like finish out the budget. Right. Which is like not what happened, but it's, it's those sorts of things where it's like, yeah, sometimes people just need like a restart, but a lot of the time people just need better wages or right. Like need economic justice. And so it's, it's a tricky thing because they do get them nice clothing and not fast fashion clothing, right? Like they get them a whole new wardrobe. They get them clothes that will last, that sort of a thing. They redo part of their house or business or whatever. And we even see in one episode, they do like a whole barn raising and they actually like show that they're like taking their time to do it because they have to lay a foundation first. And so they like talk about having laid that foundation, but it is, yeah, it's a, it's a complicated show. And for the most part, I think, it goes well, especially for people who like it's connected to a business or something, because then it also has an influx of popularity and learning about the organization and that sort of thing. But it's tricky and complicated. Yeah. And then we get to mission trips. We're going to talk a little bit more in depth about mission trips. We already talked some about them and about the complexities of going on mission trips, right? There are congregations who are very well off who go to faraway places to help, quote unquote, help people who, when people who look like them would not be welcome in those congregations, right? To go help black and brown kids, but the black and brown kids down the street or in the nearest city or in the next town over are scary and dangerous, right? The the, like racism that is so very built into the mission trips is very problematic and is one more level of the problematic stuff. Sure. And then our final example is from a governmental perspective. The United States government under Bush, the second Bush presidency, and others gave a lot of aid to countries in Africa for things like HIV and AIDS and fighting those diseases. As long as they didn't teach safe sex, which is to say as long as they taught abstinence-only sex education, or as long as they didn't provide any abortions or full-spectrum reproductive health care, just this one sliver of what was considered appropriate, like which is turning into what the United States is right now in terms of reproductive health care and who decides what is appropriate health care and what is not. Yeah. Don't be like them. Yeah. I mean, yes, I don't think I'm going to be like a a government of 365 million people anytime soon, but. (laughs) That's fair. Yeah, it'd be hard, but don't make it harder for people to access reproductive justice. Well, yeah, if you're going to help somebody, the more strings you add, the worse the help is and the less effective the help is. The more strings, the more toxic, basically. Yeah. Pretty much always. And if you're asking yourself, is that always true? Have you ever had a gift given to you that had strings Mm. attached? Did you appreciate those strings? Were you grateful for them? Was that gift maybe more trouble than it was worth? Just think about it. So speaking of all of these ways to be toxic, there are actual considerations that we can have for if a project is just or if it is connected to economic justice. 
there are some important questions and, and part of it is we're going to do a very quick vocab lesson. But one of the most important things when considering economics and support and charity and aid and all of those things is to think about the history of why a country or an area is disadvantaged. And that includes looking at the language we use to talk about countries and areas. A country on the continent of Africa is disadvantaged because of colonialism and colonization. We have heard a lot yes. about that recently. Frequently, those countries are called third world countries or developing countries. But what is maybe a more accurate term is formerly colonized countries or... Intentionally oppressed countries. Intentionally oppressed or exploited countries. Be another yes. one. It's not just on the continent of Africa. That's like a big one to think about. But when we think about Latin America and South America in particular, and South America all the way north to Mexico, those countries have been colonized. Their resources yes. have been stolen and exploited. They've been exploited by colonizers. The indigenous people have been decimated. They are not third world or developing. They are exploit countries that we have exploited, especially in Latin America and South yeah. America. It's like the Monroe Doctrine of, I think it was the Monroe Doctrine that was like, the Western Hemisphere shall be for the United States is so yeah. problematic. It's bizarre to me that it ever was considered okay. Also, the U.S. did not, you know, limit itself to the Western Hemisphere. It's true, least, it's true. But yes. <laughs> it branched out a lot, but um, specifically that doctrine was about there. Right? But knowing that history is vital to understanding why a situation is the way it is. It's intentional. Especially if that history has intentionally not been taught mm -hmm. to you. So when you're considering economic justice and how to uh, help people who are in trouble, it's a good idea to not just decide what other people need for them, but ask the people in that location or in that situation to identify the problems that are present, the needs that are present, and the best solutions available mm -hmm. for those problems and needs. Don't decide for yourself because you don't understand as well as they yeah, do. The people who know the context know it better. They are the experts in that situation and you should listen to them. Mm -hmm. People who are in the location uh, or who are going through that situation when possible should also be hired to do the work or to make the stuff mm -hmm. because you want to help their economy too. Importing the workers, importing the administrators or uh, various the other... supervisors and like, yeah. Yeah, it, it, importing all those folks does not actually help long term. What you want is to uh, help that local economy. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you can potentially help teach skills in that way, too. If there are people who don't know those skills, you can teach them the skills to do that work. And then they have skills, too. And that helps all sorts of possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. And then so we were having some trouble coming up with some models of economic justice. And then once we got started, it was pretty quick. But one of the people to check out is Muhammad Yunus, who received a Nobel Peace Prize along with his bank, which is a cooperative bank owned by those who are borrowers who do micro loans. And it, he came up, I don't know if he came up, but he popularized the social business model. And what that is, is a business model within the structures of capitalism that dominate. But one that says, instead of 
the only measure of profit is how much money is made. It instead says the measure of profit is how it benefits the community. And so yes, the financial profit goes into development for the community, or if it's people who have plenty of money in particular, like that money doesn't just go to profit margins, but it goes into the community. If it's people within the community, it is a kind of, we all rise together, right? Increasing some someone's sure. profit in that sense helps them be able to spend money on other people in the community and that sort of a thing. But it's to say the benefit to people and community and the environment is actually how we measure if a business is good and profitable. Sure. Awesome. Also, there are a bunch of universal basic income projects that are happening right now. I just recently heard about one happening in Des Moines. A lot of places have kind of started doing some pilot projects during the pandemic. I wish we all had. All of them have been proven to be very effective. But to say people get yeah. an automatic income because we need money to live and everyone deserves to live. Everyone has a right to live. Yeah. Wait, you mean there's a right to life? What? There's a, a, a right to life, liberty, and happiness in this country? I'm confused. Speaking of life. Speaking of which, we also have multiple studies from countries around the world telling us that healthcare that is profit-driven and organized around what makes a profit is not as good as healthcare that is healthcare driven mm -hmm. that is trying to keep people healthy and help them be more healthy. Uh, and so when we provide healthcare in ways that yes, do have to be paid for, but also turn out to be way more affordable when the entire structure isn't built on the concept of making a profit, it turns out that we all are actually healthier because if you can buy the tongue depressor for you know, basically cost rather than buying it at a markup. Over the course of time, buying all of those supplies winds up being a lot cheaper. Mm -hmm. And it is going to be more expensive to take care of some people. And that's okay, because everyone deserves yeah. to be taken care of. Also, healthcare yeah. in that realm, and we kind of got at it a little bit earlier, but the idea of like what gets funded Right. When it's a for profit thing, yeah. companies are not going to fund cures for cancer. Right. There are cures for diseases that are sitting on shelves because it is not profitable for the pharmaceutical companies to sell them. It yeah. is more profitable to manage symptoms than to cure disease. And not all diseases are curable, but yeah. like if you can. Do right. And also, it turns out that when people have access to health care and are able to keep themselves reasonably healthy, they turn out to be, you know, really helpful, useful, and even productive members of society who can help other people who are in need for other mm -hmm. reasons. So again, that is a social good. Yes. And it's not required yeah, no. to like help other people, but it is good. And also that just tends to happen because when you're not constantly in misery and struggling with your healthcare uh, and in crisis mode, you are better able to and more likely to be able to help other yeah, people. It's almost like you like being part of community. Yes. And while we're at it, having housing that is not entirely profit driven is also helpful because it turns out that if uh, that your sole motive for providing housing is to make a profit, it's going to do weird things to the housing market, as we are all seeing right now in real in real time. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
if housing is run on the basis of people need to have places to live rather than based on what is going to make the venture capitalists the most money, mm-hmm. it turns out that the houses are going to be in better shape. Just ask Brad Pitt, please. Having housing that is based on a model that is not purely profit-driven is also really useful. Mm -hmm. And again, if people have housing and aren't constantly struggling in in crisis with that, they are in better shape to help others. Yeah, and to be a part of a community. Their mental health is better, too. Also, reparations. Reparations is a big thing in economic justice. That is, people getting compensated for what they are owed. Reparations in particular is connected to slavery in this country and the ways that Black people, people of African descent, were enslaved and really still are through the criminal justice system. And then when slavery was ended, it was, I mean, originally it was supposed to be 40 acres and a mule, right? And most people didn't get it. Most people then got sucked into really harmful sharecropping and other economic systems intended to keep them as close to slave levels as possible. And so reparations means giving money, in particular to Black people, because they are owed that from the centuries of slavery. Yeah. The centuries of white people. And trauma. Yeah. Of white people kidnapping, enslaving, harming, torturing, and killing them. It is not even justice. It's just like what they're owed. And if you want more information, the 1619 Project is a great source. Yes, definitely check out the 1619 Project and we will link to that as well. And another economic justice model would be food and water for all. That part of people deserving because they exist to exist and to continue to exist is not only housing or shelter and healthcare, but also food and water. We need that. Right now, city after city is going through water crises. Jacksonville, Mississippi, Flint, yeah. Michigan. We had a problem here in Baltimore last week. Hawaii. Everybody deserves water. There are reasons why there are places where you're legally not allowed to turn off somebody's water, somebody's electricity, because it could kill them. Also, SNAP benefits. Like, what would it look like if everybody had SNAP benefits? If everybody had access to a certain amount of money for food? Because food is necessary to be alive. Yeah. And the more generous we make those benefits, and I'm not just talking about, like, the amount of money, but also just not making the benefits have strings attached, Mm -hmm. the better. I once had a conversation with a relative of mine who shall remain nameless about how, oh, you know, the problem with SNAP benefits is that you can, uh, or with uh, EBT uh, benefits, is that you can buy lobster and steak with them. And I looked at them in some confusion and said, well, yes, but A, that is not very cost efficient and people who need those benefits know that. And B, those people have birthdays too, and they're allowed to celebrate their birthday. That's not a crime. Yeah. So- like, why would you put that, that stricture on them when they're not going to be doing that very often anyway? Because it's not like they can afford it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, SNAP benefits do not go nearly as far as people think they do. No. And while we're at it, another option is debt forgiveness. A lot of people, especially in the United States, are in a massive amount of debt, not because they were buying jet skis or fancy cars when they couldn't afford it, but simply because they had a medical condition or a medical crisis or because they wanted to go to school to better themselves and got 
hoodwinked by people who frankly should be prosecutable for their crimes Mm -hmm. by people who were you know intentionally restructuring restructuring public education in the 1980s under Reagan to make it harder for people to be educated so that the populace would not be educated and would then just fall under the crushing weight of capitalism. Well, that was last week. I think this week we're more talking about the people in the 90s and the aughts uh, who and and after that, who were telling young people who were fairly defenseless in these conversations that, oh, just, you know, keep taking out more student loans. You'll be able to pay them off later and you'll be able to live high at the moment uh, and it'll be great. And not, you know, talking about the interest rates on these loans, that kind of thing. And so uh, various types of debt forgiveness, especially though, I really want to emphasize Mm -hmm. the medical debt. Cancer should not wipe out the life savings of an entire family for generations. That's not how the world should work. And I think we can all agree on that. Student debt and medical debt, if those two were wiped clean, would have a huge impact on the positive impact on the economy, but also in terms of the structures of racism that have impacted people that have negatively impacted people of color especially black people and black women in particular. Also debt forgiveness for countries that have been colonized and exploited and then their economies have been flipped and all of that stuff. And they're stuck in debt to countries and to the world trade organization, all sorts of the WH like Jubilee cut the country's debt and they can actually like take care of their people. Yeah. And build up it. It turns out that Haiti would be in much better shape if they hadn't had to pay billions of dollars to France because France, you know, no longer had the slaves that they had gotten used to having, which, you know, Haiti shouldn't have had to pay that back in the first place because slavery is evil. It's not complicated. Now, I realize that many of the examples of toxic or non-toxic charity that we've given already are somewhat unclear on various axes. Uh, The world is a complicated place, (laughs) but also... There are some examples of people trying to do charity that we just kind of want to keep an eye on because we're not really clear how this is going to work out long term yet. For example, for example, Mackenzie Scott, who had the good sense to divorce Jeff Bezos, (laughs) (laughs) has become famous in recent years uh, since the divorce for giving away massive amounts of money to different charities and causes. And For the most part, as far as I'm aware, the places that she has given that money have made enormous amounts of difference in the world. They've been to organizations that maybe weren't quite ready for that amount of money, but those organizations did have good levels of transparency and accountability, and it just took them a little longer to figure out how to use all that money than they originally expected in a few cases. That's fine. And Melinda Gates, uh, now that she is divorced from Bill Gates, uh, has also shown some interest in doing similar things. Again, like the Gates Foundation, this is a case of the work that they're doing is good, but also there needs to be some conversation about transparency, accountability, Mm -hmm. the decision-making process, all of that. Uh, Because when you've got an enormous amount of money going out into the world uh, with no conversation at all, that can lead to some very strange things, as we've discovered previously. Or uh, even more recently in the news, uh, in the last few days, uh, the owner of the company Patagonia has given away the company essentially is the way that the headlines keep reading actually it turns out that what's going on is that he is going to be giving a lot of money to climate causes uh, in a in a good way it sounds like um, but also uh, 
it just so happens that he will avoid a $700 million tax bill and also avoid his kids having to pay a 40% inheritance tax when they inherit the company. So, you know, there's, mm. there's stuff going in several different directions there. And not all of it is being thoroughly reported, but we do have a link to, I am so sorry, Bloomberg.com, because while Mike Bloomberg himself may not be great, actually Bloomberg.com does sometimes do decent reporting. And uh, they have a further explanation of some of the ongoing uh, issues with that situation. Mm -hmm. And one thing I will say that is hard to conceptualize is when it comes to economics, and especially when it comes to millionaires and billionaires donating money, like Mackenzie Scott, great, I'm glad she's donating money. Her net worth is more than when she started giving the money away, right? To say I'm giving a million dollars to something to me or Kay and almost certainly all of our listeners, that's unfathomable. But to a lot of them, it's like a dollar to us, right? It's not actually a high percentage of their net worth or their income. So that's that's another thing to pay attention to when we're, especially when we're lifting up famous and rich people for the charity that they're doing. Yeah. So all of this information, what do we do with it? We have some questions to ask yourself when you are considering what you're going to do with your time, resources, and people. Yeah. So those questions to ask about what should we do next include what is the history What is the history of the problem you're trying to address and the area where you're trying to address it and who has been involved? Who has the power in this situation? Who is the one that's not vulnerable in this situation and who will come out of the situation smelling like roses almost certainly no matter what? And therefore, how should you treat that person or organization a little differently than the way you would treat someone who is more vulnerable? Mm -hmm. And who is making the decisions in this process? Who is deciding what should be done and why and how long-term the benefits should be and why and who should be affected by this charity and why? And is this group or organization or person who's making these decisions the right person to be making the decisions to give the most help and help in the best Mm -hmm. way possible? And whose voice is missing? Whose voice are you not hearing, especially if it is someone who is local, if it is the local voice, the most impacted voice, and you're not hearing them? That's something to make sure you're paying attention to and to make sure you know how money is attached to all of these questions, right? How does money relate to all of these questions? Yeah. And also, how are you in relationship with the people in who are going through the situation, who have the problem, who are in the area? How is it relationship? And relationship means long term, not in and out. But how is it a long uh, sustaining relationship or a sustainable relationship? And how are the upstream issues getting addressed, right? If you're just taking the babies out of the stream and you're not going upstream to see who's putting the babies in the stream in the first place, you're just always going to be stuck taking babies out of the stream. And babies deserve to not be in the stream unless they're with proper care and all of those things. So... Make sure that it is not just band-aids that you are doing, but that you are addressing the whole, the larger systemic concerns as well, or that they are being addressed, or that there is something that is tackling those as well. Both are needed. Yeah. 
So as we jump into the readings for this episode, our first reading is from Amos chapter 6, verse 1a and verses 4 through 7. Amos tells the people of Israel that the wealthy who have been extravagantly self-indulgent instead of helping the poor will be the first to go into exile. So one of the themes in this passage is self-indulgence. And it wouldn't be a conversation about self-indulgence if we didn't bring up Hunger Games and the people of the capital who at (laughs) the party that they throw for the victors when it's Katniss and Peeta literally drink something to throw up so that they can keep on eating self-indulgence at its finest folks which i believe is a thing that the author stole from ancient rome actually oh really yeah okay and then as we dive into the verses in verse four we read alas for those who lie on beds of ivory and lounge on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the stall and i was thinking about this and rewrote it a little bit to be alas for those who buy art of elephant tusks and blood diamonds and send themselves into space for fun and eat pangolin fetus soup and dolphin from their pods all of these things actually happen yeah Um, and you can check out there's an article that we'll link to of like endangered species that are also considered food or delicacies Yeah. On a slightly less depressing note, uh, I read that same verse and I realized that to modern ears, beds of ivory don't necessarily sound very comfy. Although historically speaking, uh, several civilizations have slept on hard surfaces and it's kind of a matter of what you're used Mm -hmm. to, I think, uh, from what I understand, unless you have very specific back issues. Because uh, in some cases, a uh, truly hard surface for your bed can be good for you. But also in the game Skyrim, there is a whole city, Markarth, uh, that was built by a previous civilization that all the beds there are made out of stone. And those folks actually do seem pretty well rested as you go through the city. In your fake computer game? Yes, they they seem fine. Well, well, and the reason why I can tell that they seem well rested is that there is another city that is having issues with nightmares of long-term residents. And those people are not well rested and they are grumpy until you help them. Gotcha. So... Do they have beds of stone? No, but they do live in basically a place that seems to be in the middle of a constant blizzard 24 hours oh. a day. So, like, you know, they have their own that issues. Sounds quite delightful, uh, actually, Dawnstar. But, okay. The blizzard part. I love snow. Not if you're living in a house made of wooden straw. Oh, yeah. That would be awful. That'd be so cold. Yeah. Yeah, they don't have a lot of money gotcha. in that town. But uh, And then in verse 5, we read who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, improvise on instruments of music. I'm going to take a shot in the dark here that this verse is not actually saying that Miles Davis and other (laughs) jazz musicians are like bad people for the sake of improvising on on musical instruments, Uh, but rather that those who ignore their actual real-life responsibilities Mm -hmm. in favor of idleness and, you know, therefore improvising on musical instruments are not doing good things Uh, and it wouldn't surprise me a bit to hear that david did ignore his real life responsibilities in favor of noodling around on i mean he did he he made military decisions based on who he wanted to have sex who he wanted to sleep with yeah so that's not necessarily yeah and then in verse seven we read therefore They shall now be the first to go into exile, and the revelry of the loungers shall pass away. I was thinking about this, and in 
the show Westworld, which I am still in the middle of, not through, the AI finally gets to think for itself, <laughs> like, after generations and gener like, 60, 70, 80 years or so, I don't know exactly how long, of, like, dying every day and <laughs> being reborn, it finally evolves to such a place that it gets to think for itself. And definitely the powerful, right? The decision makers, the ones in charge, the humans that are in charge of causing all of this suffering for the AI are the first to go. So, you know, accurate, basically. And then our second reading for this episode is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 19. The author explains that since the love of money leads to miserliness and a focus on self-indulgence, it is the root of evil in the world. Instead, we are called to be generous and help those in need. So one of the themes in this passage is the idea that there is something better or more important or more valuable than wealth. This is the realization that I think Noah Wiley makes in Leverage Redemption. Noah Wiley's character. Yeah, sorry. Noah Wiley's character makes. Uh, let's not cast aspersions on this poor guy who's just an actor that's true usually i don't know actors names but i know noah wiley from like (laughs) er and a bunch of things and so he's one of the few actors whose names i know and i don't know what his character's name is that's how it goes i know either your character or (laughs) the actor (laughs) so noah wiley's character makes the realization in leverage redemption that in fact the money that he's been making in a less than honest way, in a less than good way, yeah, is not actually a great thing. And it takes a bit, but eventually, like, and so then he's like, oh, no, I have to make it up. And it takes a bit, but eventually he stops trying to use others to assuage his guilt, right? He stops trying to make everybody on the team undo the harm that he has done in the past and been complicit in in the past. But it's this, like, well, there's other things at play. There's bigger pictures. It's not all about me. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And then in verse seven, we read, for we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it, which reminded me of, so there is a tradition or an interpretation. I don't know, a story that goes that the first and last breath that we ever breathe is the proper name for God. And I so, have not heard that one. Yeah, it's it's a Jewish Right, that you breathe in and you breathe out, and so in Ah, that sense, you your first breath is God's name, and your last breath is God's name. So you are bringing your presence with God into the world and taking it out, which I think is really beautiful and really cool. And then in verse ten, we read, "For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil." And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So I had a teacher once who actually like figured out a a fake math equation for this that's much simpler than what I came up with. But I came up with a series of if-then type of math equations. So if less than three asterisk money sign equals the square root of evil times n, then less than three asterisk money sign squared equals evil times n, then less than three money sign squared divided by evil equals all kinds. And less than three squared times money squared equals evil times n. 
and being all kinds. Then less than three money less than three squared equals evil times n divided by money squared. Then less than three equals the square root of evil times n divided by money. So love is the root of all kinds of evil divided by money. <laughs> See, I like this better than the version that a high school classmate of mine uh, tried to come up with one day that, that started with women demand time and money and therefore women are the root of all evil. Which That might have been. Yeah. Joke. This is much less misogynistic. Although I think the less than three part turning into a heart makes a lot more sense if you're looking at it than if you're listening to you talk about it on a podcast. It's true. So. It's true. I thought about just saying heart, but it, I couldn't resist. Hashtag right. I love math. <laughs> and then in verse 13a, we read, in the presence of God who gives life to all things. So I'm going to assume that the author means that God gives life to all things that, you know, have life. And not that God also gives life to all the inanimate objects as well. <laughs> what about invisible friends? Snuffleupagus? Well, invisible friends are not inanimate objects to begin with that, that we know of. Have. Because if God gives life to inanimate objects, then I have some apologies to make. Um, I'm just <laughs> saying. I don't think my dishes would like going through the dishwasher, even though I love it when they go through the dishwasher. And this reminds me of in NADPOD, Not Another D&D Podcast, which is a podcast about D&D for grownups. There was one campaign where a character temporarily brought a spoon to life who was named Spoonie. And like Spoonie was great fun, but also that's probably not what God is up to for the most part. I'm just saying. Yeah. As you were saying that, I was thinking of Hobart, which was the dishwasher at camp. And we definitely, like, would change part of Hobart's name. We'd put, like, masking tape up and, like, finish the name in, like, all sorts of funny, funny ways. Especially, like, thematic with the sure. whatever the day what, or theme was at camp. That was great. I like Spoonie, though. I'm a fan. Okay. I would like a Spoonie, yeah. please. Yeah. In verse 16, we read, It is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So it's not terribly clear if this verse is talking about Jesus or God. Like, it's probably one of them, but you're not entirely sure which one the author is talking about. But either way, let's be honest, the author is wrong, okay? <laughs> Poetic language is great for a lot of things, but you don't actually need it to let it drag you into full-on lying because people <laughs> have seen Jesus. And also, like, well, Jesus's immortality is like a conversation topic because Jesus did die. <laughs> So Great. that that is a thing that yeah. happens. And Jesus said that people who have seen Jesus. Yeah. And also like people have seen God because don't forget the pillar of fire or the, the pillar of cloud. And for that matter, you know, all, all sorts of other times when, when people have seen God. So either way, the mm -hmm. author is wrong. Po and like, don't let poetic language drive you to actually lie, uh, is my point. Um, in the Young Wizard series by Diane Duane, uh, wizards have to be extra careful of what they're saying and exactly how they say it when they are using the magical speech that is speech with a capital S. Because when they speak in that language, if they say something that isn't true, it becomes true. And that can be a problem. Like if you call someone a name in the speech, they could become that thing. It depends on a few other things too, but like it, you want to be careful about what you say when you're using that language. The, the magic yeah, language. that's so. dangerous. Mm -hmm. That's part of their training. And then our gospel reading for today is from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. 
Jesus tells the parable of poor Lazarus and the rich man to illustrate that the first will be last and the last will be first, reinforcing the important role of the Hebrew scriptures. I would also like to point out that this Lazarus is not the Lazarus who Jesus brought back from the dead, who is his friend who lives in Bethany. Different Lazarus. Different Lazarus. Totally different. Different gospel, in fact, I think. Yeah. Because Lazarus is in John. Yeah. Mary and Martha are in Luke, but Lazarus, Mary and Martha are in John. So different gospel. Different. Except that it might not be Lazarus, Mary and Martha because. Well, yes. Which episode did we talk about that in? Lazarus and Mary. We talked about that in an episode. I don't remember which one. A few times. Yeah. So one of the themes for this passage is the idea of entitlements. This is something that the rich man has a lot of that he thinks, even after dying, he thinks that he can order people around. And it is also definitely the perspective of Earth and slash the United Nations, which is like Earth and the moon in the show The Expanse for like basically the entire show. They just feel like they are entitled to all of these different things. They're entitled to the resources. They're entitled to leadership and governance of the ring, all sorts of things, because that's where humans originated. I do, however, want to take a moment to point out that the way you're using the word entitlement and the way that, say, the American government uses the word entitlement are two very different things, because a government entitlement is something that you are actually entitled to because, say, like Social Security, you've already paid into it. Yes. Entitlements in a governmental sense are very different. Everyone should be entitled to food and benefits and those sorts of things. We don't have enough of those kinds of entitlements. I'm talking about the entitled jerks. So in verse 19, we read, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So purple cloth in biblical times was a sign of great wealth, which you may have heard of before, but uh, I'd like to get into a little more detail about it. Uh, The reason for that is because the dye, which was called Tyrian purple or Phoenician purple, was made from an extract of a particular kind of tiny sea snail. And it took a ton of work to make. You basically had two options. You could poke the snail, which would make the snail make the extract, or you could kill the snail and extract the ink from it. And either way, it was a lot of work. And these were really tiny snails. And so you could have a whole bunch of them and you still wouldn't get a lot of dye out of it. For particulars of exactly how much work that was, uh, according to one article, which we will link to in the episode description, Mm -hmm. 12,000 snails made enough extract to make 1.4 grams of purple dye, which was enough for one garment. So 12,000 snails. Okay, so we are talking a ton of snails. Making purple dye was a lot of work. And the reason why this was so important was there was no other good way at the time to make a purple dye that actually lasted any length of time and didn't also like give the government a terrible smell. I assume that dead snails didn't really give a great smell either. But like once you worked your way down to the extract instead of the snails themselves, that was not so much a problem. Mm hmm. There was also a related snail that made the color that we now call royal blue, which is where it got its name, because for a long time there, only royal people could wear that shade of blue because it took so long to make the snails make the dye. But also those snails are less well known. And the fact that blue could be expensive to make back then was less well known because there were there were lots of other ways to make blue dye, different shades of blue, not exactly royal blue. But the color blue itself was less prized because there really was no other good purple dye at the time. 
by 400 AD, only the Roman emperor was allowed to wear purple in the Roman Empire because of how difficult this was to make. So this imaginary rich guy in Jesus's story is bizarrely unbelievably rich, like very possibly past Jeff Jeff Bezos Bezos and Elon Musk. Wow, that is rich. Yeah, because I... Because he has to be able to wear the uh, purple and challenge the emperor... So he doesn't get in trouble for wearing the purple. Yeah, well, yeah. At, at, at this time, very rich people were allowed to wear purple if they could afford it. Uh-huh. it they didn't actually have the, the sumptuary laws that kept uh, rich people away from it the, back then. It wasn't until 400 AD that only the... It, it actually became more and more oh, difficult okay. to make the dye as time went on because it turns they out that if you keep killing you know, 12,000 snails, you have fewer snails. Yeah. Weird. So later on, it, it was harder to find, but... I like that you're wearing a purple shirt as you talk about this. <laughs> you know, I hadn't thought of that. And then in verse 21, we read we read of Lazarus, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. And this made me think of Dante from Coco. So Dante is the dog that Miguel loves and has like pseudo adopted, who then becomes oh. his alebrije. And so, like, gets wings in the, like, afterlife part. Because all dogs do go to heaven? Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but so then it's, it's like, Dante in the sense of, like, caring for Miguel, but then also, like, even becoming the angels, carrying Lazarus away. Oh, love it. Sure. Yay, Dante. And in verse 24, we read, The rich man called out, Father Abraham. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. And this is like one of those things where like small relief is more important to this rich man than a repentance that might actually lead to life, right? Yeah. He's not interested in like, I have done something wrong and I can make, and there are ways that I can make it right. He still wants Lazarus to serve him, which goes back to the entitlement and being entitled that I mentioned at the beginning of this passage. Kind of like how Wile E. Coyote's animosity and disdain for the roadrunner gets in the way of him living his best life. Like he is so hellbent on literally destroying the roadrunner that, and it never works that he doesn't get the chance to like live his best coyote life. And then in verses 27 and 28, we read, he said, then father, I beg you to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. I don't know that I can explain exactly why this is, but when I was a kid and I read this story, I became convinced that this rich guy wanted to save his brothers by warning them, but he didn't want his dad warned. Like somehow that is how the story came across to me. Warn my brothers, ignore my dad, but they live at my my dad's house. And I guess it could go either way. The sentence is just phrased a little oddly. I think there's definitely a way that you could make it very clear that he wants his entire family warned, you know? I don't Mm -hmm. think that would be hard. But the way it's phrased, it kind of sounds like he wants to warn his brothers, but not his dad. And... If I was concerned with the eternal condemnation of my family members, I would hope that I would want to, you know, phrase my request as carefully as possible. Granted, he is, you know, a little busy, what with the whole being tormented thing, so I suppose he's a little distracted. (laughs) But I also hope that God is not as particular about grammar as the community in the book The Giver by Lois Lowry is. But 
still, it seems worth paying attention. Like if you're going to ask God for something, pay attention to how you phrase the request. That seems reasonable. That's true. I agree. There was a whole episode that I just watched of what we do in the shadows about how you request things. <laughs> but now it's time for our lovely segment, Let's Make a Muppets Musical, where we cast Muppets and occasionally token humans to be in the Muppets musical we might make of these reviews. <laughs> So, okay. Do you have any ideas to start with? Uh, well, as I was uh, reading First Timothy and thinking about miserliness and self-indulgence, and particularly as money is the root of all evil, I was reminded that for Statler and Waldorf, I don't think money is the root of all evil to them. They, like, have nice touches. They seem okay with money. I, It's kind of hard to tell. You don't really see a lot of their life. But for them, I think incompetence in show running is definitely the root of an awful lot of evil, because they have opinions, right? So... That's fantastic. They do definitely have lots of opinions. I was looking at the story of the rich man and Lazarus and thinking of like Elmo as Lazarus. Like it's interesting because we like we don't hear from Lazarus at all. Yeah. He doesn't say anything. But Elmo just gives off the like like Abraham could totally be snuggling Elmo. <gasps> Big bird. Big bird as I, Abraham. Okay, yes. Big bird as Abraham I'm on board with. My issue with Elmo or anybody that cute as Lazarus is that Lazarus like goes through some serious suffering first. And I don't want to see Elmo do that. Like I don't want to see anybody do that, but I especially don't want to see poor little Elmo do that. So who would you cast as Lazarus? Well, okay. So in this parable, you definitely have to have the rich man be the person, right? That, that yeah. That's the human being in yeah. the scene. Yeah. Because you, I mean, if you don't want a, a Muppet to be Lazarus, you definitely don't want to see a Muppet being tortured in hell. That is not what this musical is about. Um, gracious. Right? Uh, sentences you never thought you'd say out loud. Number 573. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just going to have to take a minute to get past that image. Okay, moving on. As for Lazarus, I think my issue with Elmo being Lazarus is that Elmo is fundamentally a child. And Lazarus mm. is not a child. Lazarus had a long life of suffering. And so I think it would have to be someone older. And there are older Muppets. I don't, and like, I wouldn't wish this on anybody, but in terms of who has the emotional breadth to pull it off. What about Beaker? Maybe, but especially what with the whole not talking thing. I could see that. Yeah. It, seeing Beaker in a scene without Dr. Honeydew seems a little odd, but I suppose that's certainly possible. Maybe Honeydew fired him, and that's why he's poor. That that mm. seems like a terrible concept. But yeah, because Honeydew is all of a sudden going to be the rich man. Yeah, I suppose I've also always pictured Lazarus as like just generally being grumpy, even if he doesn't talk. And so I was kind of thinking Sam Eagle could probably pull off the you know angry glare that he might have. Interesting. When you started to say grumpy, I was like, oh, Oscar the Grouch is already literally in the <gasps> correct. In trash. For it. Oscar would actually be a decent, and Oscar arguing with the dogs who are coming to lick him would be, yeah, mm -hmm. that, that would actually work really well. Who's the rich man? The rich man. Well, if the rich man is being played by a human, who do I want to see being tortured in hell? Um, again, how does sentence Or Or who would be able to play who could pull off someone the so arrogant that even when they're being tortured in hell, they think they yes. can order people yeah. around. You know, we, we've come up with a list of actors to play characters not that dissimilar from this before, and all of them seem to be white guys with British accents. <laughs> and I suppose there's probably some cultural concepts to that, but Michael Caine and Benedict Cumberbatch as people who we have both cast before seem like decent choices. I suppose Gwyneth Paltrow also, also comes to mind if we want to do a gender bend. I was thinking about Michael Caine, potentially. Also, I wonder about 
Matthew McConaughey. Ooh, you know, not only would he be able to pull it off, but I think he'd enjoy the scenery chewing. Yeah. Awesome. That's that's quite the cast. That, I think, would be a phenomenal Muppets Yes. Musical. Absolutely. So, thank you for joining us, dear listeners. We are excited that you are here, and we have our quarterly special Patreon thank yous for this episode. We're a little bit late because... I misread something slash forgot about something, but we're here. And that's the important <laughs> thing. So a big Patreon nerds at church. Thank you to our supporters, Bridget Watley, Pace Warfield, Aaron Holmgren, Lori Kaiser Boswell, Polly Festa, Jules and Claire Acklow, Lowell Chilton. Thank you so much. We could not be and do nerds at church the way we do without you. And if you would like to join up, we will let you know how momentarily. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the 17th Sunday after Pentecost. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Nerds at Church or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our uncut guest episodes and interviews, live Q&As, and more, just like our Patreon supporters, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. It is, in fact, cheaper than going to the doctor because your dog licked your sore and it got infected. Also, let us know on Facebook or Twitter who you would cast for Let's Make a Muppetoon Musical for this episode. As the ancient Christian said, Pox Phobiscum. Phobiscum.